Welcome to the Hotspot. I'm your host, Armandez Fuliarjamandi. Today, I'm joined by two IoT industry experts, Winston Lazar and Oliver Bruce. Winston is the former senior product marketing manager at iTron and Silver Spring Networks, two companies who sold enterprise scale networks to governments and private companies. Winston used to spend his time convincing his clients not to use LoRaWAN, the wireless technology that powers the Helium network. But now, Winston is a full convert to the Helium way and spends his time building out the network. Oliver is the host of the Micromobility Podcast, a show that explores the disruption to urban transport from new lightweight electric utility vehicles. He's also an investor in and advisor to micromobility startups and a former regional operations manager for Uber in Australia. If you're one of the many people out there wondering what the Helium Network will actually be used for, this is the episode for you. We cover many real-world use cases of low-power IoT devices and how those devices can make the world a better place. Before we get started, I have a quick announcement. I am giving away a US edition Nebra Outdoor Miner. So check out my Twitter page, at Rarman, that's R-A-W-R-M-A-A-N, and have a look at my most recent tweets to find out how to get involved. If you're already involved, I promised that there would be a step four in this podcast episode, so here it is. Once you finish listening to this episode, I will have tweeted a link to this episode. I want you to reply to that tweet, and you have two options. Either tell me what you would like to see me cover on a future episode of The Hotspot, or tell me what you learned during this podcast that really blew your mind. That is all for the giveaway. I'll be announcing a winner on Tuesday, August 10th, so keep on the lookout for that. And if you don't happen to win the giveaway, we just reopened applications at FairSpot. Check us out at fairspot.host. We send you a free helium miner. You get to keep 70% of the earnings with payouts every Friday. More details on episode 12 of this podcast. I really hope you all enjoy this episode. I know it's been a while since the last one, but this was a great conversation and hopefully you will learn just as much as I did. Oliver, Winston, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Really excited to have you two on to discuss the part of Helium that is rarely covered on this podcast or anywhere really, and that is usage. What does it look like for devices to actually connect to and use the Helium network? What kind of problems do these devices solve? Who comes up with them and how are they sold? And how does Helium make it easier for these devices to connect to the internet and serve their purpose? I think you're both very well qualified to explore this topic. Oliver as a micro mobility enthusiast and practitioner and Winston as an industry veteran who's put tons of time and thought into how to sell low power sensors, actually get them out into the world and so much more. Oliver, to start, I'd love if you could introduce yourself and explain why you're in this space, what got you here, what drew you to Helium, and then Winston, I'd like you to do the same. Awesome. Hey, uh, and thanks so much, Arman. Uh, like, I love yeah your podcast. It's an honor to uh, to to come and join you on it. Um, it's been it's been a very useful uh, service for the community. My my background is um, I got into crypto in 2013, 2014. Uh, I was living in the Middle East at the time and I ended up going from there. I ended up at Uber in New Zealand, worked on a bunch of strategy stuff for a couple of years. Post-2017, ended up going to work in a group. Well, I ended up starting a podcast called Micromobility after I'd left Uber. And we were covering the kind of the emergence of new these new electric bikes and scooters. So uh, it was kind of very early days of like Bird and Lime and, and others. And so... I had always been kind of interested in crypto, but never really saw the inter like the the lining up of crypto and micromobility as they as they were coming down the pipe. That kind of changed when uh, Fred Wilson uh, from Union Square Ventures started posting about this company that he invested in, along with Multicoin uh, called Helium, and I went and checked it out, and I was like, that that kind of makes a lot of sense. Mainly because I, in the micromobility world, one of the biggest problems that we're trying to solve is connectivity. So you can you can afford to pay a lot of money. If you run a shared shared vehicle, like to connect it to the internet, and we do that with cellular networks. But if you wanted to have like a, I have a scooter, a stand up scooter, and a lot of my friends have e bikes and stuff like that. And like, if you want to connect those to the internet, there just really isn't an option to be able to do that. So when Helium came along and they were saying, yeah, we're going to incentivize this build out of this network, and it's going to be for really low powered devices, I was like, click click. All made sense to me. I had background in crypto. I knew that you could economically incentivize a whole group of people to 
to do some really interesting things. Doing a lot of writing, I got really excited about it. That's where I met Winston. Um, we just started chatting about like um, how this is kind of a new paradigm in some ways of building connectivity solutions. Um, and then obviously on the crypto side, I'm just incredibly excited about it because I think it's there's a lot of my my critique of crypto is that I I love it. I think it's an incredibly interesting space. I think it's going to build the future for a lot of things. But in, but <laughs> a lot of it's crap. And uh, this is a really cool and interesting deployment of utilizing crypto incentives and actually building something that's of real value in the real world. Hopefully that's good grounding and understanding like why I ended up here. Winston, how about yourself? Yeah, you know I think uh, it's a good good place to kind of. Um, parlay into where I came in here is, is how uh, do these solutions impact the real world? So I have spent my career uh, working with technology companies, large and small, uh, bringing new solutions to market with a particular focus on smart utilities and smart cities. We've been looking at uh, how networks as a fundamental you know, connectivity layer enable a very, very broad range of solutions in those spaces. And, and for me, I, I looked at, at connectivity as you know an entry point to enable a lot of different valuable use cases for the end user. So most recently, I, I was with a company, and I'm going to refer to these companies sort of together. Uh, they had a similar vision to where Helium uh, is going, directionally speaking. I, I joined a company called Silver Spring Networks back in 2015. Coincidentally, there's some lineage shared with the, the Helium executive team. I know Frank Long was uh, working with the team that I, I joined. Actually, we did not overlap. Unfortunately, I didn't have the pleasure of working with Frank. But the vision of uh, Silver Spring Networks was to create uh, an open platform for connectivity solutions for critical infrastructure. The focus was on primarily smart utilities and smart cities, but it bridged into industrial IoT. And the approach that they took, you know, had a lot of, of similarities, but there were some drawbacks based on the markets that we were serving that really prevented the technology we were working on for really graduating from the space that we had that was, again, specialized with the uh, utility and city market into sort of the long tail of uh, IoT solutions. And that goes goes to the, the nature of that customer as a critical infrastructure customer. They have really special, unique requirements in terms of uh, the robustness of the technology, performance, reliability, security, longevity, and sort of investment protection aspects. We can look at all these things. And so SilverSpring had actually some, some very substantial success. It you know, was among the first most successful green tech or clean tech companies to go IPO. And I think that has really to do with the fact that, again, it was this sort of fundamental connectivity layer that had a broad range of uh, valuable you know, outcomes that it could enable. And this is by contrast, let's say, you know, one of the ones uh, back, back in the day that, that has some negative connotations and a big flash in the pan failures in the clean tech space, you know, Solyndra, let's give that as an example of, of a technology that really had a lot of promise, but, you know, went down. It was too focused. You know, I was really captivated by that when I joined Silver Spring Networks, this, this vision of, of having an open platform for uh, the industrial Internet of Things, I'll say more generally. And Silver Spring had some very substantial success. They really gained a competitive footing in the, in the market uh, for smart utilities primarily by you know, focusing on the whales. So we would you know, win from, from time to time a deal where we'd deploy anywhere from, let's say, two or three million up to eight million devices connected on a single network. So, you know, in terms of where IoT is going and, and has come from in terms of applications that have been proven at scale, I have to say we have had a lot of success in this space. Helium has, is not the first platform to do this, but it, it, it may be perhaps the most successful platform in terms of how it reached ubiquity. So uh, I'm going to close this off and just say, you know, I, I finished off at iTron. iTron, ultimately, it was a, a veteran smart utility solution provider, vertically focused, and they had to acquire Silver Spring Networks because it became a true competitor and it was really, you know, starting to leapfrog iTron in terms of going to the next frontier where, you know, utilities would start to bridge into smart cities, uh, leveraging that platform for, for more diverse use cases. You know, I have to say it's sad, but I had to leave after about six years at the company. I worked with some really amazing people, learned a ton, you know, really was uh, 
proud of the value that we were delivering to the world in, in terms of you know real sustainability metrics in making cities and utilities operate more efficiently, more resiliently in ways that really impact people. But I had to leave because I was on the marketing team and marketing and selling a network took years. There were pilot projects. In fact, there are still pilot projects when I started that are at pilot scale. I'm not going to name names. <laughs> so I, I had to leave. And over the last year, I've been building out the Helium network in, in various capacities. And my first reaction was, this is a scam. This won't work. This is not scalable. The numbers don't make sense. But then I started to dig into it. And I have to say, the way that tokenized incentive structures have impacted this this ecosystem really has flipped the script in a way that uh, I truly believe that this is the next platform, not only for the Internet of Things, but for connecting a smart device to an Internet application. So, Winston, you said a lot there, and I want to unpack a few things that you said specifically. I want to know what network success looked like before Helium. I think a lot of people who are involved in Helium think it's like the first IoT network or the first thing of its kind. But a lot of the underlying technologies have been around for a long time. And as you said, you know, you were working at a company in 2015 who was doing large scale successful deployments of IoT networks. So what does that IoT network look like? Well, first of all, there are millions of communicating devices connected on a single network. These technologies have been proven at scale, not only for, you know, since I started working in the space uh, in 2015, but I've in uh, working, you know, in that capacity, done a lot of research into where these technologies kind of come from, how they have been proven and deployed over time. And the fact of the matter is I, I referenced some shared uh, lineage between Helium and uh, where I come from, came from at Silver Spring Networks. It's really funny when you look at radio frequency ISM networks over the last, not 10 years, this is like a 30-year endeavor. Historically, it may not have been referred to as IoT. It was M2M, machine-to-machine communications. So you asked, what does it look like when they're successful, large-scale deployments? Well, first, you know, we're thinking in the not thousands of devices or thousands of gateways. We're, we're talking about millions of devices connected on a single network and what's interesting is these are not homogenous devices. These are heter- heterogeneous devices that do different things. They speak in different languages. And so the way this, this looks when, when you actually do this successfully is you have these devices being able to communicate shared data that allows the network owner, the customer, the, the operator of a real business solution to take that data generated from the device, know that they can get it reliably and put it into an application that gives them some sort of you know, operational efficiency, some level of automation or some insight that can help them make smarter decisions. And with those networks, who is the typical user and what is the cost of deploying something like this? How does a network go from zero to powering millions of heterogeneous devices? And how does this contrast to what Helium is doing? The, the word user is something that that I actually want to unpack a little bit and hear your guys' views on, because we're all users of these networks. We may not even know it. In fact, when these networks are successful, this will always be the case. We're using them and we don't know it. So it's really important that we stop thinking about technology because technology is a means to an end. We, We want to think about the real value that these solutions are delivering. So I'm going to give you an example of how we're all using these networks. And it's just extremely basic. You know, we all use electricity in our homes and we want that electricity to stay on. It's extremely problematic, you know, from whether you're an individual or you're trying to operate a business or you're, you know, a researcher at a university and the lights go out. Reliability in these systems that we all interact with and sometimes interact with blindly and just, just assume they work, you know, they do just need to work. In order for that to happen, the operator of those networks needs to have some level of intelligence into how those systems are working, where there are points of failure, and how to mitigate those points of failure so that you and I don't actually ever notice that there are smart devices connecting, communicating, and making sure that these systems stay operational. I'd love to just pick up here because one of the reasons we ended up connecting was was his background in the space. And I think the thing that has been most interesting about what Helium has done different to everything else, and I see it specifically in micromobility, has been if, until now, if you wanted to connect a device to a network, you have to configure that device to that network 
And it becomes highly difficult if you're building, especially say for example, you're building a scooter or an e-bike and you're saying, I want to connect that and I want it to work anywhere in the world and I want it to be low cost. So yes, there have been IoT networks that have worked in the past, but oftentimes it's been like, okay, the things network that existed in Europe and some sometimes in Australia, very hard to like, you could configure it. It's still a pain in the butt to have to like connect that thing. And it's only in certain areas of coverage. You can't incentivize the coverage to be extended anywhere else. All the systems that Winston were built that Winston was building were really good for uh, a fixed device. You know, hey, you want to put a water meter onto um, onto this internet device so that you at least can track all that data that's, as it's coming through. But once someone has built that network, they don't want to go and open that up. Like they don't want to make it available to anybody else. And so what ends up happening is you end up with all these like effectively a lot of different networks being built very specifically to solve this very particular problem. And, you know, Winston and I, you and I have talked a lot about it, the Mars Rover problem, right? It's like someone says, it's like, I want this thing. I want it to have like really amazing uptime. And the person who's building the network is like, well, yeah, we could build it like that, but it's going to mean that you can't open it up to anybody else. And they're like, well, we don't really care. We're going to pay for it. It's going to do this one thing. It's going to be really great. Why I think Helium is so interesting is they've worked out how to effectively build up the network and then come along and say to anybody like, hey, you want to connect them to the internet? We have fully ubiquitous coverage in most of the major cities. So you're going to be totally fine to connect. And that hasn't existed before. Yeah. So let's let's get back to something. So Armand, you asked a question. We didn't get to it. And I also didn't answer your last question. So I'll do that too. <laughs> so you asked about a cold start. You know, what does that actually mean? So the cold start really means you want a solution working in a certain area. Do you want a network that enables that solution? You also need the solution. What I mean by that is there are thousands of technology companies out there making different types of smart devices. And when they make a, a device, these are resource-constrained enterprises. They have to choose a technology that they want to work with. So they, in an early stage company, they have to look at, okay, how am I going to engineer the system, go to market with one product? And they have to find a way to do that efficiently. And they have to think about how to build that product in a way that gives them access to the largest serviceable market. So there's cold start problems on, on sort of two fronts. There's a problem of having a technology, it's a smart device and integrate the right network technology so that that solution provider can access a target customer. And then there's the other side of it. This target customer needs a network available that can connect the solution that they want to buy. So those are sort of the two fronts that I think we need to be thinking about. And uh, specifically, you were asking about what is Helium doing differently? And that's the question I didn't quite get to. What Helium is doing differently is this you know, true commitment to, one, they found a way to achieve true ubiquity. And let's just say, here we are, two years out from the network with more than 4,000 cities connected, every major population center, you know, there's some regions and, and we can get into the specifics of, of why that may be some regions that aren't well as well covered as others. But largely speaking, major markets have achieved ubiquity in the major population centers. That is just remarkable. So that's one thing that Helium has done uh, differently. And obviously, you know, there've been a lot of discussions had about how this tokenized incentive structure has enabled the company to achieve that on such a short timeline. So that's one real unique aspect, but I think the part that you know doesn't really get as much focus, and it, it pertains to this other question we were talking about, about ecosystems of solution providers that can make use of this network. Uh, what's different is the ability to develop a device, just as Oliver was alluding to, identify, okay, this is a technology that gives me access to a ubiquitous, you know, serviceable market and major population centers, and do that really efficiently. So it's just you know, one dev kit you need to work with, integrate once, access a global market. Hear it from me today, because years ago, I was saying this to technology companies that we offered that in my prior prior roles. And the fact is, we aspired to do that. We aspired to be open. We aspired to cover all the major population centers. But in order to do that, we were whale hunting. We were looking for those major consolidated Edisons, the utilities that cover, you know, New York City and ComEd and Chicago. So we had to knock those off one by one in order to open up those markets to solution providers. And then on the other side of it, we had to talk to technology companies and make this pitch. Integrate once, you're going to get access to all of these markets. But the reality of it, it was not truly open and permissionless. It was open by invitation only. 
And I know because I was the one extending the invitation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you bring up a lot of interesting points there. Let's go back to the tokenized incentive model because it seems like if you're deploying these large scale networks, it would be to your benefit to invite other participants to use the network and charge them. Why didn't that happen? When these huge networks are built out, what was the thing stopping enterprises from saying, hey, we built this network in this place or maybe multiple cities, everyone else come use it and you can pay for it? Is it that it's too hard to coordinate that economic activity? There's too much extra work to be done? Is it that the payment wouldn't be worth it? Is it due to security or privacy? Why do these networks end up siloed from one another instead of working together? Yeah, siloed is is a bad a bad word in this space. Anytime we looked at something, it was like the old way of thinking was this, and the new way of thinking is uh, really unified, uh, heterogeneous. Some of the things we were talking about earlier. But to be clear, I think you're actually asking two different questions. So there's you're talking about the tokenized incentive structure and what does that do? At least from my perspective, the second question is it's very very different, and that is why are these networks? Why weren't they truly open? I, I'll talk just you know, very briefly about what the tokenized incentive structure has done from my view. My personal, like in terms of where, what technology I have the most breadth and depth in knowledge of, it's radio frequency mesh networks, the companies I work for developed and, and I've sold for many years. So when I looked at LongFi, aka LoRaWAN, you know, it's something that honestly I'd been pitching against and developing takedown attacks in the FUD and all that stuff for why LoRaWAN was the wrong choice. So uh, I've come a long way, just, just to be very clear on this stuff. And so the tokenized incentive structure, what it did is really, it, it sort of flipped the script. Like I said earlier, uh, you don't need to sell a network anymore. The network is something that any individual, if they see the, the value in it, they want to create capacity, tokens allow them to get rewarded for doing the work to create that capacity. So actually really curious. I'd love Oliver to jump in on this one, but I think it's important to sort of dig into this tokenized incentive structure and, and why this is, is unique. And I want to close out one thing before I hand it over to Oliver. So I, I mentioned RF mesh networks. We used to talk about these as kind of living networks, and it's living in the sense that all the devices can co- connect and collaborate with peers. They're meshing networks. So Fundamentally, it's different. Some people have you know misbelief uh, that Helium is a mesh network. It's it's not. There are some peer communications certainly, but what a mesh network means is the edge nodes actually connect to each other and they send data back and forth and they're able to coordinate decision making at the network edge. Helium is a living network in a very different way. It's a living network because we are all part of it and we are all incentivized to make contributions to that network. Uh, again, and to create capacity. So, you know, I used to say star networks, which Helium is, is based on, you know, are dangerous for a critical infrastructure customer specifically because cities are living ecosystems. Cities change, buildings pop up, massive snowstorms hit and devices may get covered in a couple of feet of snow or building goes up and all of a sudden, you know, you may have some, some network infrastructure that's blocked and creating a dead zone. The angle that we used to take was, well, a mesh network, you can work around that. You can work around a new building. It'll make its way around a volcano. Whatever it is, these are the devices are able to make decisions to make sure that that network, uh, that the connectivity is consistent, reliable, robust, all those things. But again, Helium is, is living in a different way because we're all a part of it. As people, we can figure out, okay, my neighbor just built a, you know, an addition on their home. Maybe I had to move my antenna to a different part of my property so it's not blocked. So we're making the decisions. Tokens are incentivizing us to do that. And so it's, it's living. It's just living in a very different way. Totally. Why I've been so excited about crypto in the first place is because I think that crypto is a, it's like a fundamental rethink of how we organize humans and society to achieve a common goal. So if you look back at like how we've done stuff in the past, we've had like, we would get together and do guilds, we would have uh, the state who would organize things. And then all of a sudden we kind of came up with this idea of limited liability companies in the 1700s. And in some ways, the thing that I've got, I got really excited around in the early days of watching the kind of the growth of Bitcoin mining power and then Ethereum and the community that sits around Ethereum is that you have a bunch of people who are incentivized to make something happen. And so why are we sitting here making a 
podcast about this for free, effectively. Why do I go out and write about helium for free? It's because I am incentivized and excited. One, I'm excited. I'm always going to be excited about new tech, but like I'm incentivized also to spread the word and it will live and die on its own merit. If it provides no value, it should decide to die. But the reality is that like Winston, who has been employed traditionally in a normal company would go out and he would be paid to go and talk to a bunch of people. Nowadays, he's going to do it and nobody's paying him for it. He's just incentivized because he's like, he wants to see the network succeed and he's going to benefit from it. And so that like the tokenized model, yes, it incentivizes very specifically the network to be built out. But I think it's much, much wider than that, which is we are able to harness a lot of goodwill and also effort and energy from people who are otherwise engaged in a 40 hour work week who just want to do this on the, on the edge. And like, I look at all the people who are in the discord and who are going and building towers and all that sort of stuff. And bunch of them are like have full-time day jobs as telco engineers or as technicians, you know, and this is just something they do on the side and it allows them to have a small little business. And I just think that that is an incredibly asymmetric thing, like a traditional telco that you can't um, compete against that if you're in a traditional um, business model. Like if you're in a, Hey, everybody's got to go shares and we're going to, we're only going to be able to incentivize people by paying them as employees. It's it's a very challenging thing to see. Obviously we're here and we're just doing lower WAN and, but when we start getting into like 5g and other things, obviously we have to get through exclusivity licenses and all that sort of stuff. And I totally get that. But the idea of having an open access thing where you've got a whole bunch of people competing to or co-op, competing to be able to uh, get get to a certain a, a state of the network i just think is is, uh, is, is such an incredibly compelling vision and like we haven't ever done this for something quite like this before so it's an incredible experiment yeah i think you brought up multiple points in there we we could go so deep on everything that you just said and i want to so let's let's shelf for the moment, the question about why do these traditional networks not talk to each other and not sell to each other? First of all, the Helium ecosystem and the open source nature of it. I know this is something that Winston's also very interested in. And the multi-network vision of Helium, going beyond LoRaWAN, going to 5G, Wi-Fi, even the older 3G and 4G type networks, and maybe networks that we can't even imagine today. These things are both huge network effect builders, huge value adds, I think the ecosystem itself is very underrated. If you just look at the amount of projects that are being built around Helium right now, whether it's sensors, IoT platforms, hotspot tracking, hotspot hosting and splitting, there are probably at least 50 companies that I've seen within the past year pop up that are just just dedicated to building Helium ecosystem products and services. We have some very, very brilliant community members who, as you said, have full-time jobs but are just contributing. And I myself, uh, in our fair spot capacity, we've needed things. We've needed to add to the Helium app certain things that make our hosts have a better time with us and give us an easier time paying out our hosts and doing our operations. And we've been able to contribute those changes to the official Helium app just by virtue of the fact that it's open source. And now everyone gets to benefit from our changes. And I see this over and over. People need a use case. They build it. They contribute it, they open a pull request, and then suddenly everyone gets to benefit in this amazing way from uh, the use case that they needed. I'd love if either of you could expand on what you're seeing in the Helium ecosystem. Why exactly is that not possible in a traditional telco space? Go, Winston. You got me fired up right now. Because so, <laughs> this is, again, I was the guy extend, extending the invitation, and it just seems so absurd today, you know, looking back at it. We all believed this, the fact that this was open in, you know, with caveats, right? And I'm going to address briefly something you mentioned about a Mars rover. And what that really means is when we were sort of, again, we were whale hunting, we were trying to develop, put this network out uh, geo by geo, looking at some of the biggest cities and geographic areas where there was real opportunity for that network to, to be created and drive some real value for that customer. Now, we were laser focused on what was the use case that was going to deliver ROI that would then justify the network to be created? That's our traditional cold start, how we looked at it. And then you layer new solutions on top of that network once it's there. So if a customer said, okay, I want this network, your smart meters kind of get it, get us going. The next thing we want to do is let's, let's have a Mars rover on that network. And because getting that deal was so important to our teams, they would chase that. 
They would take resources away from our ecosystem team whose mission was to, again, we all believed we were really focused. We wanted to create the tools to make the technology available to anybody to use and plug a solution onto our platform. The fact of the matter was, because we lived and died by the sword and we were going after all these whale deals, somebody asked for a Mars rover, we were going to build them a Mars rover. And that would delay the timeline for us getting that toolkit that could be standardized, used by everybody. Again, I had to be the one that was packaging up the developer materials and channeling them out. So there's, there's something that I want to point to very specifically, and I'm curious what your guys' reaction is. The thing that I see that is like a litmus test finger in the air that says there's something truly different about Helium is the Discord community. I'm going to guess we're probably past 100,000 members at this point. I don't actually know the number. Last I heard it was over 80, but everything grows at exponential rate and speed with Helium. Possibly we've already crossed that number. But what's important about that is, one, just global expertise. People are working on this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You have a specific question you want to ask. You will not only get somebody to chime in, they probably get an expert to answer your question in less than a minute. And kudos to Amir, because sometimes you ask the question and Amir jumps on in a minute and he'll answer. So thanks, Amir. You're setting an example and culture drives from the top down. So there's the size of the community that I think is just astounding. And the second thing is the porous nature of Helium, the entity, Helium Inc., and the community that they interact with. In the traditional world where, where I used to work in the ecosystem, you know, we communicated by email. Like, and I, I now look at email as like this insidious tool that blocks true collaboration because you're able to you know, sort of firewall your internal communications for, from your customers and your companies. When you look at Helium, you look at the Discord, you look at the open, you know, everything that's, that's available, you know, all the GitHub documentation it is as transparent as it could possibly be. You want to see a new hit proposal debated in real time. You're going to see not only Helium team members, but the global community comment and, and guide the direction of where the platform is going and vote on key decisions. So it's really just amazing to see. You see that happening again in sort of a porous nature. It's just fundamentally different from the way that we used to operate. Yeah, I find lots of excitement in the Discord. And what I especially like is watching uh, the channel GitHub notifications, which sends a message every time that there is a new commit in one of the Helium repos. Sometimes people ask me, like, how do you know like what's coming? And I'm just, I just watch the GitHub. It's all being developed in the open. I Anyone can know what's happening this week or next week. And you don't have to go to the experts and ask them the questions, which I think saves a lot of time, frankly. If people can just look at the code, look at the pull request, see what the intention behind every change is, it really sort of distributes the information in a, a very organic way that someone who's not technical can read the surface level, you know, like commit message or whatever and kind of get a, a feel of what's going on, what's coming next. And for the technical people, they can dive in and critique and say, hey, you know, this is a bug or you made a typo here. I see that happen all the time. And you can also tell when something huge is about to go wrong because sometimes there's an announcement that something was pushed out to production. And then 40 minutes later, the announcement is like, well, this broke everything. So, you know, we're doing the reversion. But I just can't imagine communicating with like a sales rep or something trying to figure out why my device is not joining the network. And like that just seems like such a foreign, weird concept after experiencing the way that Helium handles that. Totally. Winston, do you want to talk to, because you and I have talked about this in the past, but like the value of that roadmap, like what that hit process means for you when you think about development of the network and, and, and knowing as someone who's like wanting to see it develop and be able to go and sell it to others, what that means to you? Again, it just goes down to sort of clarity of direction, making sure that resources are being allocated efficiently to the right causes. I mean, you submit a controversial HIP proposal to this community and you're going to get torn up. Blockchain bloat, what are you talking about? Get this business out of here. If, if something were to happen like that in the more traditional world, the Mars rover you know, is, is the blockchain bloat proposal, but it would get through because that deal was so important. This level of transparency and collaboration on the roadmap is, is essential because we're making, you know, I hate to draw the analogy to a bunch of stupid insects, but like we're like an ant colony. Any individual proposal could be really dumb, but like as an aggregate organization of hundreds of thousands now of members, you know, between uh, folks that are building out, deploying the network and the folks that are contributing 
the technical development of the platform, you know, we're all able to, to make some, some pretty amazing decisions and act at a higher level of intelligence in, in the aggregate sense. So that's where I think about it. It goes down to transparency and collaboration in this sort of porous ecosystem. Yeah, Oliver, I'd love to hear you say more about that too. What, is, what does it mean to you that Helium is so open and transparent? And how do you think about the way that changes propagate throughout the system? Is there anything profound about that? What is your expectation as someone who is building micro-mobility devices? So I've been involved in crypto for like eight years at this point. And there's some, there are some communities that you can just tell that it's about a community and that you're building something together and it's a collaborative thing. And then there's the, the, the old model of, hey, this is a top down. We're going to build this thing. We're going to tell you how it is. And the team are the ones who, who are going to do it. And from a cultural perspective, the, the protocols that do really well are the ones that are open and the ones that are built a really strong community and a lot of trust. They're very transparent around what, what happens. And in that regard, it allows, you know, I, I, the word tribe is kind of, it, it's like in some ways kind of a negative thing, but I think what it does is it sets the, the tone and the rules. And this is, this is amazing paper called social scalability, money and blockchains, which is written by a guy called Nick Sabo back in 2017. And it's phenomenal. Like it's one of the sort of seminal pieces in crypto, but it talks about what are the rules and can, and, and anybody who's new, who comes to the group, how quickly can they learn the rules and how quickly can they trust that they can trust the others in the group, you know, to like collaborate and to be able to like create significant complexity in terms of economic interaction and things like that. And so where I think Helium has just absolutely nailed the brief has been the rules were set really well in the first instance. And then Amir has got a really strong culture around it. And then it, it means that everybody who comes to this, this is just a huge amount of goodwill. And, and Winston kind of talks to this. It's just like, you're going to ask people in the Discord, like people are going to respond to you. It's just a nice thing. Everybody's kind of here and along for the ride. That by itself, just as a cultural thing, is really important. And then what it means is that, say, for example, I'm going to Micromobility, I host the podcast, we host the conference, and I'm an investor in a lot of, and an advisor to a lot of startups in the space. And Whenever I talk to a, a scooter manufacturer and I say to them, hey, you want to be able to have some level of connectivity to your device. What have you looked at? And they've said, ah, we've explored a lot of different options. It's not really, we don't want to do 3G because it's really problematic for, for coordinating around the world and things like that. And I've said, have you heard of Helium? I explain Helium. It's a very compelling use case, $1 a year, more or less for data costs and very low levels of configuration. And then there's a huge community out there. There's heaps of resources that are being generated by a whole group of people. Yes, there's the hardware spec stuff, which is easy enough that like Helium Inc. needs to generate. But then there's all the other stuff that sits around it of just a huge community who want to incentivize people to go out and build solutions that use Helium. It's not a product at that point. It feels like a movement and it feels like something that's more than just an economic interaction, but it actually sits wider around it. And again, that's just one of those things that crypto, I think, enables. And we haven't really got the frameworks to be able to understand exactly how that looks and feels and all that sort of stuff. And again, that that's sort of why I think this space is so exciting um, and where Helium is really nailing it. I think you touched on something really important. I didn't quite get into, but you're, you're starting to dig it out of me. So in the more traditional uh, legacy uh, privately owned network world where you had technology companies very focused on delivering for a certain set of customers, you had a ecosystem, uh, an ecosystem team that was really you know, focused on creating a set of tools that could be used by the broader market. The nature of a critical infrastructure customer, be it a utility that's managing a energy, electric or gas grid, water, or a city that's operating some uh, utility service that we use, like the roadways or streetlights or something like that, the, the requirements are very, very narrow, very, you know, security is critical, reliability is critical. So, you know, we were pretty focused. We couldn't just enable the connected rat traps out there. And so the fact that you see that coming in the helium space so early is kind of a testament to the fact that this platform is designed to serve the long tail of IoT. So I think that that's one of the things that's the most exciting. And, and when you look at the tools that are available and how that works in this truly open and porous ecosystem, Armand, if you don't have the right tool, go ask for it. Maybe an engineer from Helium isn't going to deliver it to you, but somebody across the world may do it for you just because they're interested and they want to contribute to the platform. So you see that the dev toolkit 
serve a very broad range of use cases, and it's evolving way faster than any one company and resources of a, an ecosystem enablement team could do on their own. I really like what you said there, the characterization of serving the long tail. This is something that I really like to dig into on this podcast, because I do really believe that the one of the largest helium use cases we don't know what it is yet, but it's probably going to be built by someone in a garage who only had a laptop and 50 bucks to spare because there has never been a network that someone like that could connect to before. And that's where a lot of innovation and out of the box type thinking tends to happen. I heard you, Winston, uh, when we spoke earlier, bring up the concept of a sales cycle. And I that made me pause because when I think of helium, I just think of some kid buys a device for 20 bucks and plugs it into their laptop and presses compile and signs up for the console. And then they're sending packets within an hour. In the traditional landscape, things are much more organized than that. Things are much larger scale. What does a traditional sales cycle look like for a like connected project, whether it's in a city or you know a private deployment? How long does it take from concept to we are deployed and sending packets or even from concept to we are developing something? Are you waiting for whole networks to be built? And then after that, I want to talk about data credit usage a little bit, because I think that's a nice segue there. I I dig into the data a lot and I've seen people say it over and over and I agree, which is that data credit usage is lower than I would expect. But I know a lot is being built. So what's the nature of these deployments? Are they sort of like a trickle and then a flood? Are they all at once? How are these deployments typically rolled out? And do you see that happening differently with helium-based deployments as opposed to traditional deployments? Fundamentally different. And the difference boils down to, is a network involved in the sales cycle or not? When there are incentives for the network to happen organically for all of us, to create the network because we have a tokenized incentive structure pulling our attention in that direction and resources in that direction. So you don't have to sell the network. It's all about selling solutions. So I'll just briefly explain sort of the way that I used to think about things, which was, you know, a, a spaghetti bowl of uh, just, you know, lots of different messages and, and, you know, audiences. And again, please just keep in mind, my uh, focus was in this sort of special service type customer where, where the environment was, you know, essential to making sure we can get home, the lights can turn on, we can, you know, do our essential services at home and that our cities and, and large scale utility services are operating with some level of reliability. So in that environment, there's two threads. There's an uh, IT thread, you're selling a network and you're selling that network to an IT organization. And then on the other side, you are selling a solution to a business user that has, you know, some benefit that that they're looking to achieve. So I'll give you a, a concrete example. So when we were selling to a, a utility or a city, we typically would start from one or one of two angles. It has to do with what use case delivers ROI that can justify the network's existence. So for a, a utility more than a decade into the development and deployment of smart systems and utilities, you're starting to really evolve where you know not only what's happening on the production side of the energy system, but also the usage side where we all consume energy. You know, 15 years ago, before the smart grid rollouts, you might not have any idea what's happening. You're just shipping electrons down the line and hoping that you know, somebody is able to turn the lights on in their homes. And if they're not, you might wait for that consumer to call you and tell you, hey, guess what? My lights are off. <laughs> like, it's just crazy to think, you know, we're 100 years into the Edison grid. And that's where we were, you know, in the early 2000s, we literally had to pick up the phone and tell the utility that like, there's an outage in my community. And in some places, that's still the case. With cities, you know, typically the starting, you know, use case was either street lighting, smart street lighting, where you have some savings from putting LEDs up. While you're up there on the pole, you might as well put a network up there. Because, you know, it costs several thousand bucks to roll a truck to that location and you might as well create some capacity to do other things in the future. Sometimes it's smart water metering. So those are kind of the entry points. But God, how do you sell such a thing? Somebody like me, you know, we had certainly a team and people had different focus areas and expertises. And, you know, I wasn't always selling like 
One day could be a distribution automation system to electric utility, and the next day could be software as a, a service to identify theft on a grid. We had some diverse skill sets in our, in our marketing team, and people knew these different areas and how to talk to the business buyer of those solutions. But we all had to think in this sort of bifurcated way. How do you sell this network to somebody and, you know, so they understand the value of the technology of the network. They believe I'm making the right choice, a choice that I can rely on for the life cycle of that deployment, which in the context that I'm talking about could be 10, 15 years, and then sell that at different levels of the organization. I mean, when you're talking about an investor-owned utility, there's a pitch that goes to a manager level, a director level, and then an executive level. Every single one has costs. And I look back at it and I just think like, you know, we had these events where we had to bring everybody together. We had to explain to the the managers that use the system. We had to explain sort of the value to the IT organizations. And we had these fancy dinners and golf events, junkets where huge amounts of money were spent to to sell this, this vision of what you can do with this system. And every single customer required a different bespoke approach. And we just did our best to like unify the approach, but every single customer was going to be different and have different requirements. And they all needed fundamentally because of the way they operated, those networks need to be siloed, even if they're doing different things on the network. So I'm just getting dizzy talking about it right now because I'm remembering all the different characters that I had to talk to. I um I have a question for you, Winston, which is so a friend of mine had been talking to some some mining execs and people who have been involved in IoT in Australia, and they're talking so traditional IoT world, and they were talking about how they were like, oh look, the helium thing, they've seen it, it's interesting, but it's you know the whole crypto thing is kind of a, it's just weird, like it doesn't make any sense. And he had this amazing line, which is like, can you imagine going to the like head of a large mining operation, like a large mining corporation and saying like, oh yeah, we want to run like mission critical, you know, like IOT stuff on some amateur radio network, which has been like built by a whole crew of these people. And I'm, I laugh because I'm like, I had this, we had the same thing at Uber, which was in the beginning, I helped set up Uber for business in Australia and New Zealand. And, you know, yeah, we weren't like perfect, you know, we had to solve around tax and about availability and ubiquity and all that sort of stuff. But eventually it just became, I remember having the early conversations and people laughing us out of the room that like people would take Ubers because at that stage we were operating at that stage illegally, or sorry, uh, not illegally. We were operating outside of the regulatory framework of the existing, of the jurisdiction in which we were operating. But yes, over time, the paradigm on all of this is going to shift and it'll become one of these things where you go, you don't even need to do anything. All you need to do is you don't need to build your own network. You just need to buy the device that'll work on our network. And in actual fact, we don't even need to buy the device. Someone will build that crap for you and you just buy the data of us and we pay you a small amount of the thing that you, we can build that stuff way down for you because we know that this system is going to work. And we can we, we can trust and rely on the market-based and tokenized systems that you're going to end up with the coverage that you need and then there's all the other stuff that's going to come on top of that. And I think that that's the part that, like, to go to your point, Arman, around data use and data credits, like, when this thing takes off, which I am very confident it will, the amount of data that's going to flow through this network is just going to be massive. When you, when you start having composability and you can start having people easily build IoT connectivity solutions for that, or, you know, if Specialized tomorrow said, look, we're going to put every bike that we produce onto the Helium network, you know, they sell a couple of hundred thousand bikes a year, it opens up and then someone else comes along and says, yeah, not only are we going to do that, but we're going to, we're actually going to start building um, a service that somebody else can start building on top of. I think that's where it starts to get incredibly, incredibly interesting. And I can see that stuff is getting built. It's just going to take a little bit of time. Let's talk about the, the sales cycle. At, at, this is actually where I wanted to go with this, Armand. And I, I thought it was important to, to explain the network piece and you know how you're kind of thinking in two different ways, talking to two different audiences. But I think you know we wanted to get here talking about solutions and using the network for things that all of us will appreciate and outcomes that will impact our lives to get there like you have to think how does a product come to life how does a product get commercialized you know there are a lot of decisions that need to get made i alluded to it earlier but there's an engineering uh, a resourcing question that happens within any small organization and let's let's be clear like the companies that are most hungry and are doing the innovating the fastest uh in the helium space they're tiny little companies 
they can afford to take the risk. They see the potential. They see how quickly this is moving. They want to be first movers in this space. But if you are a solution provider that's looking at a lot of different technologies that can enable the solution they want to provide, and you look at networks, you could have half a dozen different options that deliver various performance benefits. And so you need to make a really informed decision about the path that you take. You have fiduciary responsibilities. If you're an executive at a startup, you may have value that you need to deliver to on a certain timeline to investors. You may have committed to some of your, your customers that you're going to be delivering something to them. So it's really hard to take a new technology and integrate that into the product development cycle. So there's product development cycle and sales cycle of networks, I think, sort of go hand in hand. And it just takes time. You have to see some coverage. You have to see your access to your customer being created and not in a fragmented way. And I remember having lots of conversations and I, I believed to the bottom of my heart, when I talked to a technology company, when I'd say something like, you know, we have eight of the top 10 major metros covered in the U.S., you'll be able to sell to all these utilities. And guess what? They're buying at scale of not tens of devices, but they're buying at the scale of tens of thousands, if not millions of devices. So these are like real proven networks that have been out there for a very, very, very long time. And so there's a meaningful, addressable market on the table. You may need to make an informed decision and you need to actually plan. And that takes some time. So let's see where we are right now in the Helium timeline. Technically, we're two years in. If you look at it from the perspective of a solution provider, their solution requires a fair amount of work to take that technology. In fact, it actually doesn't even start there. It starts with awareness. You just need to know that this option exists. And awareness, we're pretty far advanced right now where we are in the helium hype cycle. I think that's starting to get to the solution companies and we're starting to see a lot of activity there. But even once you get from the awareness, you need to think, okay, how... Do I migrate if I have an existing device? How do I take what I've done, incorporate this new technology? How do I resource that project? Not only how do I resource it, then how do I test it on the network within the solution company's environment? I'm going to need to get a first customer that is willing to go off on a limb and they're going to try that device at you know a scale of one to a handful of devices. And you were trying to get this out of me earlier, Armand, but like when you build out a network and you deploy a solution bit by bit, there's real care that's taken from you know both sides, the customer side and the solution provider side to make sure that you know when you put a device out there, it's just going to work. And so we're not there yet with the Helium network to be totally clear, but the coverage that has been created with this, frankly, you know, unparalleled speed, it's starting to really generate the buzz and interest in the solution provider community. I have conversations frequently with technology companies that are looking at this network that are you know, making concrete plans to develop and deliver a solution that rides on Helium, it takes time. I expect to see it, but it doesn't pop out out of the woodwork like the network has. It, it really takes some smart planning and it, resourcing and time. That makes a lot of sense. And it dovetails really nicely into something that I'm dying to know about. And I think you two would be very, especially Winston would be very qualified to, to answer, which is what does it mean for Helium that there is no one to go to necessarily when something goes wrong. I know that typically in enterprise contracts, you have SLAs. For anyone in the audience who doesn't know what that is, it's a service level agreement that basically says we will have 99.99% whatever, some amount of nines uptime. And in the case that there isn't uptime, this is what we're going to do for you. It's basically a guarantee that you will have someone to go yell at uh, when shit hits the fan. And it also makes executives feel like they have sort of an insurance policy on their investment. Now, there's no way that Helium could have SLAs, really, unless you were to somehow contract a company to do a very specific Helium network deployment in one or multiple locations and say, I will have X uptime for these hotspots. But I don't really see that happening. One thing that is really interesting, though, is the redundancy of the Helium network is off the charts. So if you go to mappers.helium.com, you can see all the people who are out there mapping the network in real time with their open source devices. And you can see that in points of New York City, San Francisco, Chicago, a single ping from pretty much anywhere in the city will give you a redundancy from anywhere between 20 and 50 hotspots, meaning that you have up to 50 hotspots delivering your packet. 
Now, all these hotspots are probably on different ISPs, different circuit breakers. They might have battery backup. Some of them might, some of them might not. That is tremendous redundancy. I don't know of any other network, especially wireless network, that has a redundancy like that. So what does that mean for the network, that it is so redundant? And what is the trade-off there between redundancy and SLAs? Pretty much every single network sale that I was involved with started with SLA backed up time. <laughs> we'll give it to you. You know That's where we start. We're, you, you're not going to get that from a traditional telco in the I, IoT space. They don't care. That's the truth of the matter, or at least historically, they didn't care. Why didn't they care? Because we're using their networks to do what we're doing right now. Real-time video chatting, watching Netflix like while you're at the bus stop, whatever it is, that's where they make their bread and butter. They sell you know, broadband to a device that consumes a lot of data. So why would they care about a little you know, gas leak detector that is chirping, hey, I'm alive. Oh, maybe six weeks later, something happens. Shit, there's an alarm. Like That's the nature of the communications that flow through IoT networks. So it's no surprise that the traditional carriers just didn't care to serve this market. So the approach that Helium is taking, unfortunately, there, there's no SLA because there's no ability to like maintain an SLA. There's nobody that's individually accountable for this. We're all accountable. The replacement for the SLA is the incentive for everybody to make sure that there's coverage everywhere. So I have to just make very, very clear because I believe there's and will continue to be a place for a critical infrastructure user to have their own siloed private network with guaranteed uptime if you are concerned that your transformer on your local distribution line you know, is delivering reliable electricity to the houses on that line, it's really important that you have that SLA and that somebody is accountable and, and you've got, for lack of a better uh, phrase, a throat to choke. So I believe there's going to continue to be a, a small sort of, maybe not small, but there will be a carve out for this particular market. But this goes back to the long tail. What are we doing this for? We're doing this for like, diverse you know solutions that we hadn't even thought about before i mean connected rat traps and pet location trackers and things like that i mean my personal needs list i'd, I'd have to say something that doesn't need an uptime at all but would really make a lot of impact on my life oliver and i talked ad nauseum since our shared passions overlap in, in helium and the micro mobility space uh, i have a bike manufacturing company and i've also been the victim of bike theft and you know, nobody's really come out with good tracking devices for, for assets that are valuable to us, either for emotional reasons, because we're you know, connected to them. I mean, I've been on all kinds of adventures on my bikes, and, and they, so I have a personal connection to them. Or they're just really valuable. You know, you've got a $10,000 specialized e-bike or something like that. So it's that kind of solution where SLA doesn't really matter, but like the ubiquity of connectivity really replaces mm. that. So you don't need it. I, you know, in terms of other solutions that I think are going to come down the line. So in New Zealand, we're looking at this thing. So we want to do road pricing. So one of the biggest problems that you have, right, like inside of a traffic system is that you end up with congestion. And congestion is really a kind of problem because it's like a tragedy of the commons. Everyone decides that they want to drive in one direction at, at a particular time of day. And the best way to solve that is just to say, if you want to drive on this road when everybody else wants to drive on this road, we're going to surge price the road. You choose then if you want to drive or delay your travel if you don't want to pay that amount. Until now, had really like very blunt tools to be able to do that. So the kind of best example is Singapore or London, where they've gone and built a ring around the city and said, if you go through that ring, you have to pay $20. If you were able to get every single car to have like a little GPS tracker on it, you could very easily, for, for the data cost of next to nothing for a system be able to put those and you just make it a mandated thing that every car had that and you could make it entirely like private in terms of how it, the, they transfer the data. You do have to report it when you bring it in for a war on a fitness, but then all it does is it just says you were inside of these zones and we can start doing like very granular payment systems on our roading system. It would mean that you don't have to spend billions of dollars on upgrades. I think there's like all these solutions that are going to come down the pipe where if you had low cost connectivity that you know is really easy and very cheap and ubiquitous 
and you can then work out how to sell it in a way that like doesn't require any central party. You don't have to go and pay any group or whatever. I just think it's going to enable all this innovation that's going to have really big, profound impacts somewhere else. I think I grasped where you were going with that. And it has a really great, strong analogy to a use case in the uh, utility world. So basically these networks, in the abstract sense, when you're operating a large, complicated system and you don't have connected devices that are that are actually looking at what's going on, giving you some, some level of situational awareness. The key question is, what's happening? Where is it happening? In the abstract sense, that's what that's what you're you're asking and what connectivity can do for you. In the use case that you were talking about, you know, I think you were saying something to the effect of congestion is a massive problem. You know, roadways are effectively arteries through which resources are flowing from point A to point B. We all want that to be as fast as possible. So how do we do that? I mean, you can keep building out lanes, but studies have shown over many, many years, building out new traffic lanes actually contributes more to traffic than it does to relieve traffic. So how do you do that? You have to just incentivize the right behavior. So in the same way that we're all incentivized to create capacity on the helium network and go out and put radio towers on top of our residential roofs, if you had visibility to what's happening in a traffic system, you knew how many cars were at on certain points choke points in a roadway, you could do congestion pricing and you don't need to do that at a gate on the outskirts of the city of London's core or at every bridge going into Manhattan. You could do that at a much more granular level and say, move traffic away from a concert when people are leaving the concert and you need to relieve traffic in a certain area, just price it higher there. Have a little smart device, doesn't have to communicate much, just send a GPS chirp and it connects to your account. It's effectively analogous to demand response in the electric utility world. So for those of you that don't know about demand response, we have this problem where similarly to the traffic you know, systems that we all use, interact with uh, on the roadways, in the electricity world, people behave in very similar patterns. Generally speaking, people have nine to five jobs. You leave home in a non-pandemic world. You leave home, you go to an office. You don't use the things in your home. You use the things at your office. And then you come home and you do the things, you know, like you do your laundry, you cook, whatever. You charge your EV. These are new use cases that drive the shape of the demand curve in the electricity world, the utility world. It's created a really acute problem that's referred in this space to as the duck curve. And that's just because the shape of demand over the course of the day just looks like a duck. So <laughs> it's not that interesting. But what's happened, the use case that has gained wide adoption that provides a perfect roadmap for what Oliver's talking about in the mobility space is demand response. And and to do demand response in the utility world, first required connectivity to devices at the end of the distribution grid. So you now have devices like washing machines, refrigerators, high-consuming electrically connected devices now have some level of intelligence. It all started with really obscure things you wouldn't necessarily think of, like pool pumps. Obviously, AC is a big draw. But like pool pumps, who thinks about pool pumps? Well, pool pumps were among the first targets for electricity systems to optimize. And so utilities have created these programs to incentivize consumers to buy smart thermostats, smart pool pumps, all these things that now give them intelligence to those like problem devices that create congestion on in this case, in the, it's the electricity grid. And it's all demand response is all dynamically priced. So consumers, depends on the market, but you can get rewarded for reducing your contribution to demand searches by doing, let's say, your dishwasher at 11 p.m. before you go to bed rather than 5 p.m. when you get home. Yeah, 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 no, no, this is exactly right. It So, so Winston, the, the thing that I'm, I'm, like on the other side of that, right, is that, and I was actually just talking to my, my co-host of the podcast about this yesterday. He was like, well, why shouldn't you be able to put a tracker on your e-bike? And if you decide to ride your e-bike into town, you should be able to get rewarded from the government for doing effectively mode shift. And they just, like at the moment, we don't have any data on that. We don't have a way to track that data. If you can build an ecosystem in which you can provide GPS data that's easily accessible and verifiable, and it's being uploaded into a system that like, Someone buys access to that data and then they say, cool, well, look, you you did this thing. It allows for restructuring of economic incentives around all this stuff. All of which is to say, I don't know if that's gonna, that's where it's going to go. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating, but I guess 
The point is when you have really cheap, low level connectivity to do really basic stuff like that, all those systems become enabled as a possibility. And that, that to me is where like, we haven't really had that before. Let's up level it here. Like where do we all come from? We are looking at this because at least I think we all believe that Telium is a pl platform that puts people first and there are clear analogies to, you know, some success in, for example, in a space that Oliver came from in Uber. When you have a platform that puts the, the use case, the value to the consumer in, in the case of Uber, how do you get from point A to point B? You don't care how you get from point A to point B. The technology, you know, in this, in that example is, are you getting there by a micromobility option? Are you getting there through some pooled ride service? Or are you getting there through some private chauffeured vehicle? In that environment, that's the technology. Here, we have to stop talking about LongFi. I like LongFi. Yeah, I, I'm a convert to LongFi. Let's be clear. I, <laughs> I used to pitch against it. Now I'm a convert. But what I think is truly interesting about Helium is that it's a way of thinking about connecting a device to an internet-enabled application. So technology is, there are going to be lots of different technologies to, that plug into that system. And it's just going to be really exciting to see that where that evolves. Yep, I couldn't agree more. And to Oliver's point from a while ago, I think that once people start building on top of Helium, that's where we're going to start to see some really, really interesting stuff happen. A good analogy in the crypto space is Ethereum. I mean, Ethereum has captured plenty of value, but the stuff that's happened on top of Ethereum is far more interesting, in my opinion, than Ethereum itself. I think Uniswap is just like one of the coolest and simplest inventions, right, that you would never imagine could scale so much. But they just nailed the user experience. They nailed the use case. They nailed the value. And we haven't seen our first Helium application that is like that. And I have no idea what it's going to be, but I am super excited to see where that goes. I think we really need to get people understanding what is possible with Helium and sort of inspire the younger generation of builders and older builders, builders of any age who are just coming into this and not really understanding what they can do. And I definitely want to use my platform to have more discussions like the one we've had today. So thank you so much, both of you, for, for providing your insights. I think I've learned a lot today. Thank you, Armand. Thanks, Oliver. I mean, this has been such a pleasure. I, I know I've been looking forward to it for a really long time. So thanks for having us. Yeah, same. Uh, I mean, you, like, as I said in the beginning, I just think like it, it's a it's a real service to provide to a community uh, to, to be able to have like discussions like this. And I think you're doing a phenomenal job of it. And I really like who you've brought on so far. And I'm really excited to see uh, where, where the conversation goes with this as well. Thank you for tuning into The Hotspot. If you love our content, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to maximize your impact, leave your honest review on Apple Podcasts. Your support helps us reach more listeners and educate them about the Helium Network.